Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Well, I think it's interesting that time has rendered some items that once served fairly important um, roles in our life, purposes in our lives, somewhat obsolete today. Items um, that some of you may not have even used before in your life because they've been obsolete most of your life. For example, I'm going the wrong direction. Like a rotary dial telephone, somewhat obsolete today. Cassette tapes. I use these all the time in the 80s when I was growing up, but they're pretty obsolete today. Similar to an overhead projector. If you taught or in education in the 80s or the 90s, you used overhead projectors, you recognize them, but they're not commonly used today. Typewriters, right? Rendered obsolete by word processors. That's a stack of floppy disks that we used to save digital files on, which we don't use too much anymore. Somewhat obsolete. But interestingly, time has removed us from one of the most important articles that we find and read about in the Old Testament that served a very vital and important function in the relationship of God with his people all the way through the Old Testament. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. We first read about the Ark of the Covenant in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, when God gives directions to Moses at Sinai for how to build this Ark of the Covenant. And that's the passage I want to look at with you this morning. Exodus chapter 25, this passage about the building of the Ark of the Covenant. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Exodus chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate one nearby in one of the chairs in front of you. And our passage is on page 38 in those Bibles. But again, if you do have your own Bible, you can open it to Exodus 25. We're going to begin our reading in verse 8 and read through verse 22. So if you're able, I would invite you now to stand. For the reading of this passage. Exodus chapter 25, beginning in verse 8 and reading through verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. God says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, so you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another, toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, 
and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. May God bless the reading as well as the preaching now of his word. You may be seated. Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981. It's 38 years ago. I saw it when I was 12 years old, and I have to confess it. Even after I watched the movie, I had no clue whatsoever what this lost ark they were looking for was, let alone that it was biblical. The only ark I knew about in the Bible when I was 12 years old was Noah's ark. I didn't know anything about the ark of the covenant. And I suppose it's possible that many Christians, especially Christians who are somewhat unfamiliar with the Old Testament, still have confusion and vague notions at best about what this Ark of the Covenant is and what its significant was. The significance was in the Bible to the people of Israel. And so that's what I want to consider with you this morning. I want to consider the Ark of the Covenant. But I don't want to consider it simply as a bit of intriguing history. I want to consider it because of the important and abiding truths it teaches us about the God that we're worshiping right here this morning. Because the truth is, our covenant God reveals himself to us through these instructions for the building of the Ark of the Covenant. Our covenant God is revealing himself to us through the Ark of the Covenant. So I want to consider those things. I want to consider at least three ways that God reveals himself to us through the Ark of the Covenant. The first is this. The Ark of the Covenant reveals a God of relationship. We see this most clearly in verses 8 and 9 and again in verse 22. A God of relationship. Now, it might not seem that instructions to build this box are revealing to us a God of relationship. And in some sense, that's exactly what we're dealing with. We just have this wooden box overlaid with gold. Here's a depiction of what it might have looked like. But it's a rectangular box, about four feet by three feet by three feet, made with acacia wood, overlaid with gold. There's to be four rings in it made of gold. And through those rings, there are to be two poles that are permanently fixed to the Ark of the Covenant by which it would be carried. There's a top or a covering called the mercy seat made of gold. And there are cherubim, two cherubim facing each other on this Ark. But while it might not seem like this represents a God of relationship or reveals a God of relationship, it does. Because there's a reason we call it the Ark of the Covenant. And at the heart of a covenant is what? A relationship. At the heart of covenants are relationships. We'd also do well to keep in mind that instructions for the building of this Ark of the Covenant are given in the broader context of instructions to build the tabernacle or this portable tent for the Lord. Our passage begins that way in verse 8 by the Lord saying, Let them make me a sanctuary, which will be this tabernacle or this tent. He says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see, it will be with the construction of this tabernacle that God intends to dwell in the midst of the Israelites as a God who is committed to live in relationship with his people. This tabernacle and this tent represented the presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. And along with all other kinds of pieces of furniture, this Ark of the Covenant that we're considering was to be placed in that tent. 
was one of the pieces of furniture to be placed in that tabernacle. Now, there are three distinct spaces in this tabernacle, or related to this tabernacle, that you can see here kind of on this crude diagram. Surrounding the tent is an entrance and then a courtyard all the way around it. This is the tent proper. And so you have a courtyard around the tent, and the tabernacle itself consists of two distinct areas. This first area, you would enter here through a curtain. It's called the holy place. And you can see a number of items that were to be placed there. And then another curtain here which would then allow you to enter into the innermost part, which is called the most holy place, or sometimes the holy of holies. And it's within this innermost area called the most holy place that the Ark of the Covenant was to be placed. It was to reside there. Now, details about the Ark of the Covenant are mentioned first in this set of instructions that we read all the way through Exodus 25 through 27. There's three chapters here where we read about all these articles of furniture that would be placed in the service of the tabernacle where God would dwell. And the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned first. Now, one of the reasons the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned first is because this list of items begins from the innermost area and then works its way outward. And so we begin here in the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant and then the list works its way outward in Exodus 25 through 27. Now, we should also note that the materials that the articles are made of move from pure gold when we're in the innermost places to articles of silver and bronze as we move outward. And this is to symbolize movement toward the presence of God and his holiness the nearer we draw to the most holy place. We're moving from silver and bronze items to gold items as we move inward. Again, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned first of all these furnishings, but not just because we have this inward to outward movement of the list. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned first because it's also of first importance. It has supreme significance because it represents the presence of God in a unique way. I mean, after all, it's from here, from before the Ark of the Covenant, that God is going to meet with his people that he's going to speak to the mediator and reveal himself to the people. We read about this in verse 22. If you look at verse 22 again in our text, that's what it says. There I will meet with you. Where? From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. We read something actually very similar in Numbers chapter 7. Verse 89, and when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, this tent of meeting refers to the tabernacle. Notice how relational that is. It's not just called a tabernacle or a tent. It's a tent of meeting where relationship, dialogue, and communication happens. When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. And it spoke to him. You see, God speaks in covenant relationship from before the Ark of the Covenant. Reveals a God of relationship. But the Ark also reveals a God of relationship by the items that are placed inside the Ark. Remember, this is a box. And certain things were placed inside this box. We learn from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4 in the New Testament that it contained a jar of manna that God miraculously fed his people with through their wilderness wanderings. It also contained Aaron's staff, Aaron the high priest, 
And one of his staffs that had miraculously budded in Numbers chapter 17. We don't have time to kind of look at the story in Numbers chapter 17. But we can look at these items and realize that they reveal something to us about the way God relates to us. For example, through this jar of manna, we learn that God relates to us as our supernatural provider. He is the one who provides all that we stand in need of materially and spiritually. And from Aaron's staff that budded, we learn that God relates to us through a life-generating high priest or mediator. This is the kind of relationship he has with us. Through a mediator, a high priest, and as our provider. Now, of course, both of these things point us to Jesus, don't they? Because Jesus is the true manna. The true bread from heaven, as he himself declares in John chapter 6, he is also our great high priest and mediator. In fact, the entire Ark of the Covenant is pointing us to Jesus because it's ultimately in Jesus and through him that we enjoy relationship with the living God. Through Jesus that we enjoy this relationship. And Jesus declares as much in John chapter 14 with these familiar words when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We only enjoy relationship with the living God through Jesus, by faith in him. But by faith in him, we do enter into relationship with the living God so that we can know him. Because God ultimately relates to us, he ultimately reveals himself, and he ultimately speaks to us through Jesus who is the word made flesh. This is what Jesus says in the the following verse. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. In me, you know the true God in me. To know Jesus is the only way to truly know God. And that's important to say in our pluralistic age, isn't it? The only way to know the true and living God is to know Jesus. And so it's important for all of us to ask ourselves this morning, do I know him? Do I know Jesus by faith? Because to know Jesus is to know the living God and to have fellowship and communion with him. To not know Jesus by faith is to not know the true and living God and not be in communion and fellowship with him. And so do you know this Jesus? Do you know him as your savior Are you trusting him for salvation? And do you know him as your king? It's as important to know Jesus as your king as it is to know Jesus as your savior, partly because the Ark of the Covenant also reveals to us a God of rule. We see this mostly in verse 16. Because also housed inside the Ark of the Covenant is the testimony mentioned in verse 16 and again toward the end of the verses that we read. But we know in light of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, as well as Exodus 31, 18, that the testimony refers to the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, tablets of the Ten Commandments, are also placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. These three items. So the Ten Commandments are placed there, revealing to us a God of rule, who issues commands for his people to follow. But it's important that these commandments are also revelation. It's how God reveals himself to us. The Ten Commandments are not given to us simply as a set of moral guidelines. They're given to us as a revelation of God himself. Now, how does that happen? How is God revealing himself to us, himself to us, 
through the law. Well, we can think about it like this. Most of the law is given to us in the form of prohibitions. Thou shalt not. That's a prohibition. Most of the Ten Commandments are given to us as prohibitions. But behind those prohibitions are positive moral principles. We could state the principles positively from the prohibitions. And the positive moral principles find their basis in the character of God himself. Okay? So don't try to write all these things. I just want to walk you through this and give you some examples. Right? We could just say this. Thou shalt not murder. Sixth commandment. That's the prohibition. What's the positive moral principle behind that? The positive moral principle is this. Guard, protect, respect, and cherish life. Don't murder. Respect and cherish life. But how does that find its basis in the character of God? Well, God is the God of life. He's the giver of life and the protector of life. And because God is a God of life who gives it and protects it, you give or you protect it, you respect it, you cherish it, don't murder. Do the same thing with the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the prohibition. What's the positive moral principle? Be faithful. Keep your covenant commitments and promises. Why? Because God is faithful. And he keeps his covenant promises. You do the same. You reflect his character as an image bearer. Don't commit adultery. First commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's a prohibition. Positive moral principle, be devoted and worship to God alone. Why? Because God alone is the true God, and he alone is worthy of our worship and our devotion. We can apply this to all ten commandments to discover what they're revealing to us about who God is as a God of rule. But the Ark of the Covenant reveals a God of rule in another way. The Ark of the Covenant depicts the throne of a king. The Ark of the Covenant depicts the throne of a king. The psalmist has this in mind in Psalm 99.1. Listen to what he says. The Lord reigns. It's a God of rule, by the way. Celebrating a God of rule. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. Listen to this. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Now this expression, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, is also used by the psalmist in Psalm 80 verse 1. And this arises from these cherubim, these angelic-like creatures who live in the presence of God in heaven, who God commands to be built on each side of this box in verses 18 through 20. God says, make cherubim for the ark. And the psalmist understands that the Lord is enthroned between these cherubim. And so the ark presents God to us as the enthroned king who is ruling over all. But maybe even more specifically, we could say this. The Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of his throne. It's the footstool of his throne. In fact, David indicates this in 1 Chronicles 28.2, and he says, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest. He's talking about the temple here. The tabernacle was a portable dwelling for the Lord when the people were wandering. Once they settled into Jerusalem, wanted to build a permanently fixed temple David says, I had it in my heart to do this, to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. It's referring to the same thing there. It's called Hebrew parallelism. The Ark of the Covenant is the footstool of God. Psalmist also talks about this. He says, let us go to his dwelling place. It's a reference to the tabernacle or to the temple. And let us worship 
at his footstool. That's the Ark of the Covenant, housed inside the tabernacle and the temple. And we read about in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 13. You can't see it very well. I got cut off there. When the Lord announces that he intends to beautify the place of my sanctuary, that's the temple or the tabernacle, the place of my sanctuary. Listen to this. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever caught that kind of language before? Reading through the Old Testament, this language of the place of God's feet, his footstool. But the Ark of the Covenant is depicting the footstool of God's heavenly throne touching the earth. T. Desmond Alexander, Christian author, in his book From Eden to the New Jerusalem, summarizes, summarizes the significance of this well when he says, understood as a footstool, the Ark of the Covenant extends the heavenly throne to the earth. This is where the divine king's feet touch the earth. Consequently, the tabernacle links heaven and earth. And that's exactly right. That's what the tabernacle represented. God dwelling. The God who dwells in heaven also coming down to dwell in the midst of his people. Through the tabernacle, the most important piece of furniture in this tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant, signifying his presence in a unique way. We could also consider that the tent as a whole was to be placed in the center of the Israelite camp when it was constructed. And this was the place where the king's tent went in ancient times, in the midst, right in the middle of all of the people's tents was the king's tent. And that's where the tabernacle went. Also speaking about a God of rule. So the Ark of the Covenant reveals to us a God of rule. It's true it reveals to us a God of relationship, but he enters into relationship with us as a God of rule. And that's not just an interesting historical or theological observation. That claim that he enters into relationship with us as a God of rule calls for our complete obedience and total submission to him as our king. We can easily forget by living in a democracy or republic where we have a vote that we live in a universe. We inhabit a universe that's ruled by an absolute monarch, God the king. And we are called to obey whatever he calls us to obey, to submit our hearts and our lives to him completely. And so as important as it was for us to ask, do I know this Jesus? It's also important for us to ask this morning, am I living under the rule of God as my king today? Am I submitting to his governing of my life in the words that come out of my mouth, in the images I allow my eyes to see, in the private thoughts I hold in my head or in the actions and conducts of my behavior when no one else is around and no one else can see me except the Lord my King? Are we submitting to him and following him as our king? Or are we rebelling against him? Are we rebelling against him in indulging our sinful desires and lusts, in refusing to forsake sins because of our pride, in the anger and grudges that you nurse, in the wounds that you refuse to forgive of others, in the gossip and slander you speak of others, whether public officials or the people sitting next to you? Are we submitting that to the Lord? Or are we in rebellion against him? Are we, rebe- are we rebelling by the impatience and irritability that we express toward our children 
in the fantasies that we harbor, in the prejudices that we justify, in the love and care that we neglect to give to others out of our selfishness. Are there areas of your life today that you are not completely submitting in obedience to the Lord as your king that you need to repent of and submit more fully to him starting now? Are there areas that you need to confess, whether that's personal areas, work-related, entertainment-related, whatever that is? If you're anything like me, your answer to that question is yes. There are areas in my life where there are sin patterns that I need to give over completely to the Lord. And you often feel guilty and condemned because of those areas in your life. If you're anything like me, the answer is yes. So we need to acknowledge a couple things. We're called to submit our, our hearts and our lives completely to our God as our king, as a God of rule. And we need to admit that we don't do that. But we also be, need to be reminded because of that of the good news that the Ark of the Covenant also reveals to us a God of redemption. A God of redemption. We see this most clearly in verses 17 through 21. See, something went inside the Ark, right? Items went inside the Ark, but something went on top of the Ark too. Look with me again in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Skip down to verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall place the testimony that I shall give you. Okay? So listen. The tablets of the law placed inside the ark serve to expose our sinfulness and our disobedience and rebellion, right? The law exposes our sin, and because of that, We are out of communion and fellowship with our creator because of our sin. Our fellowship has been broken. In fact, the presence of the cherubim here should recall that fractured fellowship because you know the first time we read about cherubim in the scriptures, it's very early. It's in Genesis chapter 2 when after the man and the woman were driven from the garden, driven from the presence of a holy God because of their disobedience and sin of taking the forbidden fruit, God places cherubim and a flaming sword to bar their re-entry into his presence. You see, our sinfulness has barred us from the presence of a holy and righteous God that we could appear before and live. It bars us from that access and it causes us to live under this sentence of death and condemnation. And so... One of the most basic questions, the most important questions we can ask is, is there a way back? Is there a way back into paradise, into the presence of God where we could stand and we could live? Because to be in the presence of God is true life. But is there a way back into that? Well, only, only if God, if the God of rule is also a God of redemption. That's the only way. And he is. He is. There's mercy for you and for me at this mercy seat, this covering of the Ark of the Covenant that was used one time a year on a day called Yom Kippur in Israel, the Day of Atonement, 
where the high priest would enter behind that curtain to the most holy place. And he would sprinkle blood, the blood of a sacrificial lamb, on the mercy seat to forgive the people for their sins so that they could be redeemed. Do you see the beauty of the picture here? Here's the picture. God in his holiness and in his perfect righteousness sitting upon his heavenly throne, looking down upon the Ark of the Covenant, his footstool, within which are the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which we break, which his people break. And all those covenant obligations that we fail to keep in thought, word, or deed. This law that serves to speak a word of condemnation and judgment and death. But God looks down upon that and in between his righteousness and his holiness and our sin is the blood of a sacrifice that speaks not a word of condemnation, judgment, and death, but a word of mercy and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. That's the picture. The blood of atonement has hushed the law's loud thunder, as the hymn says. It has hushed the law's loud thunder that stands to condemn us. The people's sins are covered by the sacrificial blood of the Lamb that redeems them. Wait a minute, are we talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament now? The sins of the people are covered by the blood of the sacrificial Lamb that redeems them. We're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. Those of you who know me know I like to answer the question this way. Yes. Yes, we're talking about the gospel that runs throughout the scriptures as a whole, pointing us to Jesus. See, our covenant God reveals himself to us through these instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, but he brings that revelation to fulfillment in the person of Jesus. All of this is pointing us to Jesus because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world, not just Israel's sins on this annual Day of Atonement, but the sins of all of us who look to him by faith. Jesus is the one in whom we enter into relationship with the living God. Jesus is the one whose rule we are called to obey, and Jesus is the one who secures our redemption by his blood. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that barred everyone from entering into the most holy place except for the high priest, when Jesus died on the cross, was torn from the top to the bottom, symbolizing it as a work of God from the top down. Only God can usher us back into his presence. And that's what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. And as a result, this is what the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What this is saying is our access to the holy and living God in fellowship and communion, which we were once barred from because of our sin, that access to living, loving fellowship and relationship has been restored through the blood of Jesus our Savior. That's what's declared. And it's so important for us to believe this to keep you cringing before God in the fear, judgment, condemnation, shame, and guilt of your sin. But the author of Hebrews tells us right here that we can be confident to appear before God in heaven, which is the true holy place. Right? The most holy place, this holy of holies, was really just a representation of heaven itself. It was a model of that. But we can appear before God in confidence with God in heaven. Why? 
Why can we be confident? Because we're good enough? Because of our obedience to the law? Because of our moral and religious performance? No. We can have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's what we need. And that's what we receive by faith, the blood of Jesus. You see, by the blood of Jesus, you've been given the entry code to the gate of paradise. You were barred, but the blood of Jesus is your entryway back in. You've been given that gate code to the gates of paradise, the gates of heaven itself by the blood of Jesus. You've been given the garage door opener to the Father's mansion. You've been given keys to the front door because by the blood of Jesus, you've been made, get this, a son and daughter of the living God by adoption through the blood of Jesus to live with him where he dwells in glory for all eternity. The Father has adopted you as his own. You're a member of his family. And so your Father's arms are open wide, as wide as the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross that say, come to the altar. No redemption for your sins through my blood and have confidence through me. One last thing. The mystery that the Raiders of the Lost Ark was exploring, that movie, was the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant, the historic Ark of the Covenant. I mean, where is it? What happened to it? I mean, it is really odd that one of the most important pieces of furniture in history, its location is unknown and has been for centuries. I mean, where is it? What happened to it? Now, there's no shortage of legends and theories about where it is and what happened to it. You can Google it. But here's the thing. Locating the historic Ark of the Covenant is a completely unnecessary pursuit for us as Christians. It's as unnecessary as using rotary dial telephones, using typewriters, and using floppy disks. It's unnecessary because we have something better. We have something better than the Ark of the Covenant. We have the one to whom the Ark was revealing, and that's Jesus. We know God through Jesus, the God who revealed himself through these instructions through the Ark of the Covenant. We know him through the fuller and final revelation of Jesus, his son, by faith. We have relationship with God through him. We have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins through him. And we have an empowerment through his grace and through grateful hearts for that redemption we have to live obediently under his rule as our king now and forevermore. So as we leave this place, let us live in relationship and communion with our living God and our Father through faith in Jesus. Let us live under his rule obediently with him as our king. And let us rejoice in the redemption that we have in him and in his love. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we bow our heads this morning thanking you that you would enter into relationship with us. Fix our eyes on Jesus through whom we enter into that relationship. Cause us to embrace his kingship over our life. And we thank you that in our failures to do that consistently, that the blood of Jesus atones for all of our sins. He has cleansed us. He has made us right before you. And he empowers us to conform our lives more and more in obedience to you and to your will for us. Help us to do that by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.